Job was a godly man who understood that his relationship with God ruled and regulated everything else in his life. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles, please, to the book of Job, the book of Job, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, so if you find it uh, just before uh, Psalms. Job is probably the oldest book in Scripture. It's likely the very first written account of any human being's relationship with Yahweh, so it, it very much is unique. The authorship of this book is uncertain. We really don't know who uh, wrote it. Some believe that Moses is the human author who heard about Job's story when he was pasturing his father's flocks in Midian, which is just north of the land of Uz, where Job was uh, born and raised. Some believe that Job himself was the author, given the large number of personal eyewitness references into this book. However, the argument against Job being the author is that Job obviously had no clue about the conversation between God and Satan, while the author of the book certainly did. But the real important thing is, regardless of human authorship, the reality is the Holy Spirit is the author of all of Scripture, including this book. Now, the word Job, the name Job, we're not sure what it means. Most people don't name their children Job, and when you find out what the name means, you definitely won't name your children Job. In Hebrew, it probably means the persecuted one. Now, you may want to rename yourself that after a while, since most of us feel persecuted at some point. Or the Arabic meaning may well mean the repentant one. So the name, the etymology of the name Job is uncertain, but probably one of those two. You'll probably notice when you look at the book superficially, there's 42 chapters. The first chapter or two are prologue. The last chapter is epilogue. The purpose of a prologue is to tell you what's going to happen in the action. And the purpose of an epilogue is to tell you what took place and what happens next when the drama is over. The bulk of the book is poetry. This is an epic poem like the Iliad by Homer, uh, things of that nature. And the lessons in this book are many and profound, and we're going to be, Lord willing, going over them in the next several months. Now, if we are to understand Job and his experience, we have to understand the times in which he lived. This book is remarkable in the sense that it has multiple references to the creation, to the flood of Noah, as too well as to the events following the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel, and also the division of the Pangaea supercontinent during the days of Peleg. The Australian astronomer and Bible author Barry Setterfield postulates the following time frame in his article, Creation and Catastrophe Chronology. So if you're interested, just in looking at a little research, it's called Creation and Catastrophe Chronology by Barry Setterfield. Barry Satterfield and Trevor Norman back in 1987 shook this, the physics world to the core when they postulated that the speed of light was in fact slowing down and had been for generations, actually since the moment of creation, which is absolutely uh, earth-shattering from a physics standpoint. 
So we're going to be looking at the chronology of Scripture and how Job fits into that. Remember that chronology, looking back, is compiled by a host of factors, and it's best an estimate, uh, plus or minus any given number of years. Anyway, Barry Setterfield postulates that the flood of Noah took place around 3537 B.C., so about 3,500 years before Christ. Scripture seems clearly to indicate that between that two generations after the flood, about 250 to 270 years later, humanity began to construct the Tower of Babel. And of course, remember, at that time, God introduced multiple languages and scattered the people who were building that tower. And that likely occurred between 3300 and 3200 before Christ. Scripture also seems clear to indicate that five generations after the flood, around 300 years later, after the Tower of Babel, a continental division occurred around 3000 BC in the days of Pele. I'm going to go into all of these in a little bit detail. Dr. Bernard Northrup, is an expert on geology and the Bible, believes that the, the book of Job was written no later than 700 years after the flood, within 200 years after the division of the continent in Peleg's day. So I want to take a look at the biblical support for this timeline because we generally, every sermon I've heard about Job and virtually every commentary I've read simply assumes that Job lived around the time of Abraham, and they assume that and move on. And, our, of course, my argument is that's absolutely not the case. He's probably 500 years prior to that, and that has everything to do with his experience during this book, which has everything to do with the lessons that we are to learn from that. So if we go back a little bit and look at flood chronology, this is going to be Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 is where the bulk of this, if you want to do your own homework. Noah's son Shem was born 97 years before the flood. Noah's son Shem had five sons, the youngest of which was named Aram, like the Aram sandwich. That's why he named him Aram. Aram is likely the progenitor of the Aramean nation. Now, when you look at Kings and Chronicles, you're always hearing about the kingdom of Aram. That's the kingdom of Syria. That's another name for it, just to the northeast of Israel. And this is likely their progenitor. Aram had four sons. The first son of Aram's son was named, surprise, surprise, Uz. Uz was the grandson of Shem, and it is thought that the land of Uz was named after this man's family. If you read Genesis, 5, Genesis 10, the first five verses, it seems to indicate clearly that the Tower of Babel was built somewhere after the second generation had been born to Japheth, which is Shem's brother. So Genesis 5, or Genesis 10 says, Japheth followed Gomer, that's his son, who fathered Ashkenaz, and following that, the text says in Genesis 10:5, a very interesting phrase, from these, the grandsons, the peoples of the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. This is clearly referring to the Tower of Babel incident. So the interesting question is, if the Tower of Babel took place two generations after the flood, how long was a generation in those days? And of course, the classic answer is, it depends on what translation you use. The final compilation of the Old Testament in Hebrew, the Old Testament ultimately was compiled by scribes under Ezra and Nehemiah. And that took place around 440 to 425 B.C. So you say, well, when did the Old Testament actually get compiled as the Old Testament? After the prophecies of Malachi occurred, the scribes of Ezra and Nehemiah compiled that. About 275 B.C., 
150 years later, Ptolemy of Egypt commissioned a translation of that Hebrew text into Greek, 275 B.C. We call that the Septuagint for 70 because there were 72 Jewish scholars, six from each tribe, translated that Hebrew scripture that was compiled by Ezra and Nehemiah into common or Koine Greek. And that was the case because there's this character called Alexander the Great who took over the world and Hellenized the entire world. So at this time, almost no Jew spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic or they spoke Greek. So the only time they spoke Hebrew was in temple ceremonies. It's kind of like your Catholic friends. The only Latin they know is the Latin that they spoke in the Mass. When they come out the church door, they don't speak Latin. They speak English or whatever the common language of the tongue is. So this translation was made because most Greeks didn't speak Hebrew. They either spoke Aramaic or Greek. And those were the languages of the era when Jesus was born 275 years later. They spoke Aramaic or Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. So this Greek translation, this Septuagint translation, lists the generations in Genesis 5 and 11 as being about 135 years long per generation. That means you had your first child about 135 years old. Well, if you lived to 400 to 500 years, that was probably pretty understandable. You know, it's like having children today at 20 and dying at 80. You had children the first quarter of your life. However, in 100 AD, Rabbi Akiba organized the Council of Yamnia. It was a very important council by the Jewish nation. And they had a problem. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by Titus Vespasian and two or three Roman legions. Jesus had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25. If you were a Jew and you had no temple and no altar, you had a real problem. How do you worship God without the sacrificial system that was ordained by Moses? So the Council of Yomnia got together and decided to figure out how to figure this out. However, while they were there, they decided to retranslate the Bible because the Septuagint translation done 275 had become the Bible of the Christians. Jesus quoted the Septuagint all the time. So did the disciples, so did Paul. So when you see New Testament writers quoting Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah, they're quoting from the 275 B.C. translation called the Septuagint. That was the standardized translation. The Council of Yomnia decided that they were going to issue another translation since the Christians had taken over that one. And that text is called the Masoretic text, and that's the basis for most of your English Bibles. And the problem is, in Genesis 5 and 11, that translation routinely cuts off 100 years of every generation. So instead of saying, so-and-so had a child at 135, they said, so-and-so had a child at 35. Now, the oldest translation, the Septuagint, as I've mentioned, shows a generation lasting 135 years, not 35 years. So the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, if it took place two generations after the flood, was about 250 to 275 years. If it was only 35 years, then that tower was built 70 years after eight people got out of the ark. Well, that's a little hard to believe. If you can go from eight people in 70 years to tens of thousands required to build the Tower of Babel in the plain of Shinar, that's reproduction on a rabbit scale. And humans don't reproduce that quickly. I mean, so it's very likely that it really was two generations being a couple hundred years later at that point in time. 
I'm going to show you a map of the plains of Shinar. Shinar. This is imperative to understand. Babel, or Babel, however you want to call it, it's significant. It records the rebellion of men and the sovereign purposes of God. Now, if you read Genesis 9, the very first verse, God commanded Noah and his eight people, his two, three sons, their spouses and his wife, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. That means make a lot of babies now and populate the earth. Same command he gave to Abraham. It means scatter over all the earth and populate them. If you read Genesis 11, you realize that they chose not to do that. They actually chose to directly disobey God, and they all spoke the same language, and they all decided to settle down in the plains of Shinar, which is south and east of Ararat. I think you can see, you can see Ararat in the north. Somewhere on the mountains of Ararat, they came out of the ark, and they came down to the east and settled in the plain of Shinar. It also... The Greek translation is that's Mesopotamia. And it literally means between the rivers. So between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers is this beautiful plain at that point in time was well watered and very good for agriculture. And they decided at that point in time they were going to build a tower at that point in time. Today, this location's in modern-day Iraq. It's thought that the plain of Shinar might have been 50 miles south of modern-day Babylon, well, or Baghdad, rather, modern-day Baghdad. So in direct disobedience to God, Noah's descendants build a tower and likely an astronomical observatory on top of that tower. The whole point was to facilitate the worship of their idols through astrological study of the zodiac, which are star formations, right? It's not astronomy, it's astrology. Very, very different scenario. So they had an astrological study on top of this tower, and they wanted to get an observatory up there so they could better see the star formations in direct disobedience to God. Now, the word Babel means gate of God. Bab, gate, El, God. Gate of God. They were trying to, obviously, worship themselves and, re and rebel against the Lord. Our English word Babel, B-A-B-B-L-E, it means confusing or uncomprehensible speech. So, obviously, that word, and it says that the Lord confused their speech. The real issue that was going on in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is real simple. Satan is busy organizing another revolt against God. He's already done two or three. This was just another one at that point, and God decided, I'm going to scatter these people around the world so the authorship of multiple languages, 6,000 plus of them, came at the Tower of Babel. And when God scattered the languages, everyone who spoke the same language separated into their own language group because they couldn't understand anybody else. And then they began to migrate around the world as exactly God commanded them to do. So he divided the people into various people groups, not just to scatter them, but for a very significant spiritual reason. He scattered them around the world so Satan would be unable to organize them in another worldwide unified revolt. That was the main purpose. Now, we know that modern technology is going to enable Satan to organize another worldwide revolt after the millennial kingdom. We know that that's going to happen. Revelation tells us that. God's point was to divide the people so we could win them back one people group at a time. And that's why we send missionaries, what? to various people groups. This is the reason we do language translation. Wycliffe Bible Translator does fabulous work. So 
God can win people back one group at a time. And just to make sure they stayed separated, God split the one supercontinent into the seven continents we have today. Scripture refers to this event almost in passing. Genesis 10.25 says, Two sons were born to Eber. The one was named Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Now the name Peleg means to divide by water. We, we call a pelican a bird that splits the water when it dives after fish. You ever seen a pelican split the water? They go up and they dive bomb fish and they fish them out. That's the same kind of thing. It splits the water. And this word has the idea of continuing action, not a completed event. So it seems that Peleg was born after an event that had begun before his birth and was still ongoing. Many, many scientists believe that at one time the Earth contained only one supercontinent, and they even have a name for it. They call it Pangea, which means all the Earth. And the Bible gives support to that because God said in Genesis 1-9 as part of his creation mandate, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into what? One place and let the dry land appear. Now the logical corollary is if all the water on the Earth's in one place, then all the land has to be in one place too. So we view our world from a uniformitarian hypothesis which says it's always been this way. That is absolutely not the case. Bible theology and biblical history is full of catastrophism. Full of catastrophism. The flood was only one of multiple catastrophes. It means that when Noah's flood came, the world didn't look anything like it does now. We didn't have 29,000-foot mountain peaks prior to the flood or prior to this continental division. It was a very low one supercontinent whose topography was very unique. We really don't know what it was like. If you look on a map, many of the continents seem to fit together, almost like tongue-and-groove carpentry or like a jigsaw puzzle. And we have fossil records on the borders of various continents that are identical at multiple elevations indicating that at one point in time they were one. Today, we know the theory of plate tectonics, which suggests that continents, all seven of them, float on a viscous mantle underneath them. And today we observe continental subduction or continental movements where continental plates collide and one of them goes underneath another. Probably the most obvious one you see there is, is the, Mount, the Andes mountain range on the west side of uh, the Latin American continent. You've got the Humboldt Trench down there that's 20,000 feet where the Pacific Plate literally goes underneath the South American Plate, and you get this massive upthrust called the Andes Mountains, which runs north and south the entire continent length at that point in time. Wherever that occurs, you get earthquakes, you get volcanism, you get a lot of activity at that point in time. Today, we know the continents are moving. We can measure them, but they're moving only inches per year. India is still moving north into the Andes, I mean into the Himalayas, and that's why you have mountain upthrust, but it's a few inches a year. What the Bible seems to indicate is this one supercontinent division at Peleg's day was infinitely quicker and a lot more violent. And we do have significant historical evidence that astral or, or asteroid bombardments would have precipitated this continental separation in subsequent ice age. If you've looked at the geography of the northern hemisphere, we have multiple large asteroid impacts. We've got the craters today, and some of them are really, really large. The impact crater on the Yucatan Peninsula 
is 93 miles in diameter. That is a large crater. It's also 12 miles deep. It's underwater right now, but it went 12 miles down, which is right into the mantle of the Earth. And that asteroid impact is thought to have destroyed the dinosaurs. And that's obviously quite likely. We have multiple crater impacts like that in the Northern Hemisphere, which probably was the beginning stages of this continental separation. So if the days of Peleg occurred five generations after the flood, you've got Shem, our pack said, Canaan, Shelah, Eber, and Peleg. You can check it out in Luke 3, the genealogy of Christ. Eber is the root word from which we get the word Hebrew. Abraham was a Hebrew, but Eber was his progenitor generations and generations back. Now, Eber had two sons, Peleg, who was born during this continental separation, and a fellow named Joktan, J-O-K-T-A-N. Now, Peleg's brother Joktan was a busy guy because he had 13 sons, which means he probably had 13 daughters, right? About 50-50. The youngest of the sons was named Jobab, J-O-B-A-B. And the name Job is highly likely to be a contraction of Jobab because it works in multiple languages. So given the fact that Peleg was named some years after the Continental Divide, it's likely that his nephew Jobab was born within a couple of centuries at the outside after this Continental Division began. So Job lived in the land of Uz. And the land of Uz is usually associated with the land of Edom, southeast of the Dead Sea. Matter of fact, Jeremiah quotes that and actually is a proof text for us, Lamentations 4.21, says, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, who dwells in the land of Uz. So at this point in time, the nation of Edom dwelled in what was, in prior history, the land of Uz. Job's ancestors had probably migrated there from the plain of Shinar after the languages were disrupted. We're going to show you a map of this area. It would mean that the descendants of Uz probably migrated southwest from the plain of Shinar at the Tower of Babel. And the land of Uz is obviously east of Egypt. It's on the northwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula, near the shores of the Gulf of Aqaba. So you've got the Red Sea as one of tongue of water. You can't see that. Yep, yep, you can. The Gulf of Aqaba is the main one, and then the Red Sea goes up one, one of those two tongues at that point in time. So the land of Uz is probably right on the Gulf of Aqaba. And that is where the land of nation of Edom was for a number of years. If you look at that now, it is desert. The Arabian Peninsula is dry, dry, dry like the Mojave. However, during Abraham's time, this was some of the richest farmland on the planet. Abraham was born about 2305 BC, about two to three centuries after Job's time. And the earth's geography and climate had stabilized in Genesis 13 records that Abraham and his nephew Lot were herdsmen. And their flocks grew so large that they had to separate. They didn't have enough arable land for them to be together. So Abraham said to Lot, pick whatever ground you want. Lot being all too human, says in Genesis 13.10, Job raised his eyes and saw all the vicinity of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, Eden, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. 
So this area in Abraham's time was some of the most fertile territory around. Job's time was about 2,800 to 2,600, about 300 years earlier. It was being under massive rifting uh, by shifting continents. The African rift runs right underneath the Red Sea. It begins north of Israel and travels south through Israel under the Red Sea all the way to Mozambique, 4,000 miles to the south. If you've ever been in Israel and you've been to the Sea of Galilee and you follow the Jordan River all the way down to the Dead Sea, that's all part of this giant rift. And a rift is where you have two continents that are moving sideways and splitting. So the African continent, the Namibia plate is the main continent, and you've got Somali plate is the eastern continent. So that rift runs 4,000 miles, and it goes right through the land of Israel between Israel and Jordan. And that's where Job was, a little bit south of that. When you read the book of Job, the references to cataclysmic physical events are everywhere. Now, there are those that would argue that Job's words are merely poetic expressions of physical events that represent spiritual truth. And there's probably some truth to that. But it's difficult to imagine Job being able to describe some of these events in detail if he hadn't actually seen them or experienced them. So Job's born in us, and this continental separation has been going on for probably a century or two, so we also had historical reports. But I want to give you some examples of Job's commentary in this book, and the language is catastrophic. Job 9.5. It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when he overturns them in his anger who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal on the stars. If you take these words at face value, it sounds like very powerful, very persistent earthquakes, strong enough to move mountains or to bring mountains down. It describes periods of time where the sun and stars can't be seen, which would indicate the atmosphere is so filled with volcanic ash and smoke that it obscures your view. The pillars of the earth, interesting, Job didn't know this, but underneath every one of our main continents is a very large granite mass, obviously quite large, called a craton, C-R-A-T-O-N, or a shield. They go down 10 to 20 miles underneath the crust, and they can be viewed as supportive pillars. If the continents are moving 10 to 20 miles down, believe me, things are shaken on the surface. Job obviously experienced this. Job 6.15, Job is having conversations with his three, quote, friends, and he says, my brothers have acted deceitfully, like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice, and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of the course wide along, they go into nothing and perish. Well, if you look at today's climate, you would obviously say there's no such thing as ice in the Middle East. It is desert. That's correct. It tells you that climate change is not unique to this era. As a matter of fact, the climate change that went back on there would be orders of magnitude beyond what we can imagine. This kind of, you know, when you ask yourself, what kind of weather would cause streams in the Middle East, number one, to clog up with ice, and then the thaw and disappear in the heat of summer. You would think there would be a massive amount of snow and ice and followed by a rapid melt because of heat. One of the most interesting 
theories as a result of the asteroid bombardment that occurred is that the Earth tilted during this period of time from 23 and a half to 28 degrees, which means the North Pole never was straight. It's 23 and a half degrees now, but it went to 28 degrees, which means the exposure to the sun is massively different at that point in time, and you would have certainly climate extremes and the ability to have an ice age. As a matter of fact, we know that there was an ice age. The issue Christians struggle with is when did it occur? And our argument is Job lived during part of the ice age. The ice covered most of the northern hemisphere, all of Europe, and even descended into parts of the Middle East. Job comments on this in Job 38, 29. He says, from whose womb has come the ice? And the frost of heaven, who has given it birth? He says, water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. This sounds like ice formations so deep on the surface of the sea that the waves can't even move. Have you ever seen anything with the Antarctic in the wintertime? The advance of the sea ice? Well, you stop all wave action when that occurs. He says, the surface of the ocean is imprisoned with ice. This is not a normal uh, climate variation, this is obviously pretty dramatic. Job 12.15, Behold, he restrains the waters, and they dry up, and he sends them out again, and they inundate the earth. You know what that sounds like to me? A tsunami. A tsunami. When you have a tsunami, you have earthquake action underneath the ocean, correct? Earthquake action on the surface or the subsurface of the sea moves a lot of water around. We had that in 2011 in Japan, and it was pretty disastrous. And the first part, you know, there's a tsunami is when the waves retreat, when the waters retreat. If you're on the shoreline, just saying, if you're ever on the shoreline enjoying a good day, and the waters start to retreat, that would be a good sign to get to high ground because you can't swim that well. You can't tread water that long. You've all seen, the, obviously, the horrific visions or, or images of, of the Indonesian uh, tsunamis at that point in time, because when those water come back, they pile up on the shore, and you can get wave 40, 50, 60 feet high, and they go inland. And when they say inundate the earth, they mean inundate the earth. It takes everything away from them. So you have coastline flooding, massive amounts. Job 7.12. Job is talking to his friends. And he says, am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? So why would you watch the sea? Why would you set a guard on the sea? It must have been that tsunamis were reasonably frequent. And you needed to be there on high ground to give people warning because another one's coming in, another one's coming in, another one's coming in. You get a couple centuries of continental divisions. Tsunamis are a pretty regular occurrence because the continents are literally moving and pushing water in front of them. So you got a lot of sea force splitting. You got a lot of underseas earthquakes. You move a lot of water around. Job 14, 18. But the falling mountains crumble away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you destroy man's hope. There is nothing in his tent, there is nothing that there dwells, nothing in, in his tent, nothing of his. Brimstone is scattered on his habitation. So you got falling mountains, moving rocks, means earthquakes. You got torrents of water that wash away stones. Obviously, we're talking flooding of some kind here, making agricultural impossible. 
Brimstone in Scripture almost always refers to volcanic action. So you got tephra, falling ash, pyroclastic flows, burning rocks, and he says as a result of this, possessions are few and people are poor. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Scripture with an eye to science, but we obviously have asteroid strikes on the planet, and they could obviously and did generate massive earthquakes, volcanism, mountain upthrusting, dust clouds, as well as tsunamis. The major issue Christians have with science is not that it occurred. Our argument is time frame. If you look at traditional dating mechanisms, they say it took 14.8 billion years for the planet to form, or 4 billion years. Human life took all these decades, and, or millions of years, billions of years to generate. I'll talk about Barry Setefield's speed of light hypothesis later. But it's clear when you read this that humans cohabited with dinosaurs. That is biblically not a problem at all, although 21st century science would say, well, the dinosaurs were wiped out 65 million years ago, and clearly we couldn't have lived with them at that point. It's not an issue of where they live. We got the bones. We're talking about where it was a contemporaneous with human existence on the planet. Scripture clearly says so. So you've got a lot of steam and ash from volcanism. You've got a lot of debris filling the atmosphere. You've got a lot of reflected sunlight back into space. You've got a lot of moisture. You've got cold temperatures. What are you going to get? You're going to get an ice age. We know we have an ice age. We've got the striations, and we've got, obviously, the global debris and rocks at the top of mountains that demonstrate that at that point in time. So what's the consequence of all this to human life on the planet at this point? Job 30 Verse 1. As a commentary with his friends, and he describes life that is almost incomprehensible. He says, but now, those who are younger than I mock me, whose fathers I refuse to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what good was their strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them, from poverty and famine they are gaunt. They who gnaw at the dry ground by night in waste and desolation, who plucked salt weed by the bushes, and whose food is the root of the broom shrub. They are driven from the community. They shout against them as against a thief. So they live on the slopes of ravines, in holes in the ground, and among the rocks. Among the bushes they cry out, under the weeds they are gathered together. Job seems to be describing a time, could have been his father's generation, where people were gaunt and weak from famine. They were poverty-stricken. They were malnourished. We've got skeletal remains in caves. People actually did live in caves during this period of time. And skull features that resemble what we would call Neanderthal in appearance. Rickets and skeletal deformation because of lack of adequate diet. You don't get enough vitamin D, you're going to have rickets. The harsh weather prevented agriculture, and so they were gathering and scavenging whatever they could get from shrubs and bushes, and they were eating roots and weeds and everything else. There wasn't enough food for them to even stay in a community. I think Job is probably describing a generation before him. Social life had broken down. They were living out in the open, on mountainsides, ravines, and the rocks, in caves, wherever they could find shelter. And they had gone backwards from metal use which Tubal Cain used 10 generations after um, Adam, and they were now using stones. They were gathering food because they couldn't grow it. 
And apparently the climate got better during Job's time because when you read about Job, he's a pretty wealthy guy. He's got a lot of herds, and, which requires fertile ground. Remember also, Job was south of probably where most of the ice was in Europe at that point in time, so he was closer to the equator. So there's an ex extreme amount of geographical unrest at this point in time. So I did all this because I want you to understand Job's frame of reference, where he's coming from based on his physical geography. Now I want to look at his spiritual geography. What kind of person was Job? We have a fourfold description of his character in Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Here's first principle. Job was a godly man who understood that his relationship with God ruled and regulated everything else in his life. Job was a godly man who understood that his relationship with God ruled and regulated everything else in his life. And he uses the word blameless. Job was blameless. It doesn't mean sinless. All of sin. Sinless is a vertical assessment, your relationship with God. Blameless is a horizontal assessment, your relationship with people. There was no moral standard that people could legitimately charge Job with breaking. Right? His reputation was impeccable on a horizontal level because he lived an impeccable life. Blameless has the connotation of complete. Scripture often uses the word perfect. You'll be perfect and complete. James does. He's talking about mature, complete, well-balanced, etc. So Job was complete in his obedience to God. He was complete in his devotion to God. And his external life demonstrated that he valued God more than anything else. Second description, upright, means to stand up straight without ducking and hiding. Upright is a posture of openness. Upright is a posture of transparency. We call righteous people what? Straight shooters. They shoot straight and they hit what they aim at. They are transparent and trustworthy. What do we call wicked people? Crooked. We call them crooks because they're twisted sisters, right? They don't line up with God's straight edge of moral righteousness. They deviate from it. They pervert it, which is another word for twisted. Job was upright. He lived his life in alignment with God's standards. We're called to do the same. By the way, they're not unknown. They're written down. We know what they are. Number three description says he feared God which means he held God in awe and majesty and reverence. It means to take God seriously, to take his holiness, his majesty, and his power seriously, because he is the creator, and I am the creature. He is holy, and I am sinful. Those who treat God lightly do not see him clearly. Whenever you see God clearly, you will see yourself clearly. And you respond to God with holy reverence and humility. So this word fear is not... As Martin Luther said, servile fear, where God is this torturer and you fear him because he's going to hurt you, it's filial fear. It's like you're a child who wants to please your parents because you respect, honor, and love your parents and you want your parents to be pleased with you. Well, God is our what? Father. We want our Father to have pleasure in how we live, so we fear his displeasure. We fear that our behavior would displease him. That's what he's talking about. Because we honor and respect and love and worship him, we want him to be pleased with how we behave. And the last description is he not only feared God, he turned away from evil. 
when you fear God, you honor God, you respect God's holiness, you will see evil from God's point of view. We have a culture that does not fear God, and therefore they do not turn away from evil. We have a culture that rejects God and embraces evil, which is precisely perverse. It's precisely the opposite. And until this culture comes to fear God, they will continue to embrace evil and reject him. God hates evil, and those who fear God hate evil as well. If we fear God, we will hate evil, beginning with the evil inside us. That's where our hatred of evil needs to begin. Not with your evil, but with my evil. We will hate, not hate evil outside us until we start hating evil inside us. That's his character. What's his circumstances? Well, verse 2, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Here's the principle. Job was a good manager of everything that God entrusted to him. Job was a good manager of everything God entrusted him. Now, Job was prosperous because of God's blessing. The same is true today. Everything you have is because of God's blessing. He had a large family and large estate. In that era, you measured your wealth in agricultural terms, which was measured by the size and the health of your herds. This was an agricultural, pastoral uh, climate. In our, in our culture today, you know, if you're a dairy farmer, well, how many head of cows do you milk? If you're an almond farmer, how many acres of almonds do you farm? that you own. In that era, how many flocks and herds do you have and how healthy are they? Job was literally in the agribusiness uh, community. He pastured large animal herds, and he also engaged in trade. It sounds like he was somewhat of an import-export business guy. He had a huge inventory of animals that he could use for agriculture. He could raise them, use them for milk and meat and leather and all this other stuff, but he could also use them for trade. He could swap them, and he was in long-distance caravan transport. He was literally in the trucking business. Camels are the semi-trucks of that era. If you wanted to move stuff across any sort of climate in the Middle East, you used a camel because they could handle the desert. Well, he was in the trucking business. It seems, which we're going to find out, Lord willing, the next two weeks, that Job's four friends might have been business partners. They might have been in business with him. They might have been trading partners. They lived at different locations all around the Arabian Peninsula. Eliphaz was from the city of Teman. It's a northern region, later became Edom. Bildad was from Shuhu, south of Haran, near modern-day Turkey. Zophar was from Nama, which is southeast of Canaan. And Elihu was from the city of Buz. Buz, yeah, Buzga, northern Arabia. So they were very widely separated by geography. These people were not his next-door neighbors. When they came, they came from hundreds of miles away. So he asked, what was the connection? Why did they know him? Probably business trading partners at that point. It's very instructive to realize that if someone comes hundreds of miles away, drops everything, and sits with you by the ash heap for weeks, you must have had an impact on their lives for them to do that. Job obviously is quite a unique individual at that point. Verse 4. What else do we know about his family life? His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Here's the principle. Job was a good father who was sensitive to sin and continually prayed for his children's relationship with God. Job was a good father who was sensitive to sin and continually prayed for his children's relationship with Father. Now, it's obvious when you look at this, Job's children were adults. They were grown. They had established their own homes, their own estates. They were independent. They were, their ages, we don't know, but if they're independent at that point in time, they have their own homes. They're probably somewhere between 25 and 45-ish at that point in time if they've got their own houses, they're out of the house, etc., cetera, etc., cetera which means at the time this event took place in Job's life, he's probably between 65 and 75. Could be even 80 years old. We know he lived 140 years after the event, so he probably lived between 200 and 240 years, which was not uncommon. 300 years later, Abraham lived 175, so a couple hundred year lifespan here is not a problem. It's likely that his sons at least assisted him in the family business, and it appears to be a very healthy family. Siblings got along, they threw a big feast seven times a year on their birthdays, right? And Job was pretty conscientious and, and concerned. Job functioned like parents should function, like a priest. As a parent, you are a priest for your family. A priest intercedes. A priest mediates. Mediates what? Between God and your family. And you do that by prayer. That's one of your primary jobs as parents and grandparents especially, is the ministry and the power of prayer for your family. And Job would offer burnt offerings for each one by name. Not because they sinned, but in case they might have done something in their hearts. Not an external behavior, but a wrong motive. Curse God in their hearts. You're going to see that theme throughout. He was concerned that he might have inadvertently sinned, and he offered burnt offerings. Now, he didn't offer burnt offerings to atone for their sins. Everybody's got to repent from their own sin. But a burnt offering was a symbol of total dedication to God. When you sacrificed an animal, and that was wealth, that's how you measured wealth. You sacrificed the best animal you had. Moses picked up on that a thousand years later. That is a symbol of dedication. Here's a principle I didn't even write down. I'll give it to you for free. Sacrifice is a measure of love. Sacrifice is a measure of love. The more you love, the more you will sacrifice for the ones you love. Selfishness is the opposite of sacrifice. If someone says they love you and they won't sacrifice anything for you, huh? You might want to check it out. Sacrifice is a measure of love. Selfishness kills love. It'll destroy any relationship. Obviously, Job loved God and his children. He sacrificed for them seven times a year. He was very sensitive to sin. Not only in his own life, he was sensitive to sin in the lives of those he loved in the lives of his children. Good lesson for us. What's interesting is, when did he sacrifice? When everything was going well. He's got it all. They're happy, they're healthy, they're getting along, they're not partying, they're not killing themselves. 
everything is well, prosperous, it couldn't be better, and he still is on his face because he understands that everything comes from God. The most important thing you can do for your loved ones is pray for them. Beat on heaven's door. Don't ever stop praying for those you love. The Holy Spirit can go places you can't go. The Holy Spirit can speak to the hearts of your children or grandchildren and spouses and nephews and nieces and aunts and uncles and friends and family and colleagues. He can get in their heart and you can't. But you can facilitate that by praying. So this week we've looked at Job's times, his world, his geography, what was going on in life, where he is in the biblical chronology, his position, his possessions, his family, his spiritual life. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at what can't be seen. We're going to look at the invisible behind the scenes, what's going on in heaven. This is one of the few passages in Scripture that gives us a behind-the-calendar or behind-the-stage look, if you will, pulls the curtain back. We want to find out what's happening there in the spiritual dimension that influences our physical dimension. Okay, let's review, and then, Tom, you can come up and do prayer and praise. Point one, Job was a godly man who understood that his relationship with God ruled and regulated everything else in his life. If there is things in your life that are ruling and regulating your life other than your relationship with God, you have an idol. Number two, Job was a good manager of everything God entrusted to him. I promise you Job was a manager, a good manager with a smaller amount before God entrusted him with a larger amount. And number three, Job was a good father who was sensitive to sin and who prayed continually for his children's relationship with God. By the way, I have to say this. I am so proud of you. There are many of you that are grandparents, and I know you're on your face before God on a regular basis for your grandkids. And I want to give you kudos for that, and I want to encourage you. That is so powerful. Don't stop. Please, please, please. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot of territory today. Thank you much. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.